contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh who will grieve for her. Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Um, And the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You will also be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your, women, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like locusts. Multiply yourselves like the locusts. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spread its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, let's, let's go ahead and pray. Fathers, we come to Nahum one last time. We need your help. We want to see the truth and the beauty of your glory, even in a text as heavy as this. So guide us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've walked through Nahum. It was a lot shorter than Mark, obviously. It's a three-chapter, three-poem oracle against Assyria and Nineveh. Uh, and we are in the, the last section. We're in the last moments, the last words that God has for Nineveh, for Assyria through the prophet Nahum. And as this section begins, we see words that he has spoken before. He says, behold, I am against you. I want it to be clear. It needs to be clear. Nahum wants it to be clear, not just for Nineveh, but for the people of God, for Israel, that the Lord is against Assyria, against the Assyrian Empire, against Nineveh. And this is okay. This is, this is actually a good thing. We've, we've sort of spent the last five weeks unpacking why it's a good thing, but I want us once again to consider this predominant question in all of Scripture. Is God really good? Really? Now, 
Now, Scripture resolves this and answers this definitively, but we should not, we should not ignore the fact that Scripture is not afraid to raise this question, and it raises it all the time. When, when the serpent speaks to Eve and to Adam and says, did God really say you shouldn't eat from this because God knows when you eat from this, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. God knows that there is something you lack, that this tree, that this action will give you, that this fruit will supply, that he has not. So let me ask you, man and woman, is God really good? If so, why would he withhold this from you? Or think about, even though it comes later in the scriptures, uh, consider uh, the oldest story, one of the oldest stories recorded in scripture, Job. Now, at first glance, the story of Job seems to be what, what, uh, what the devil who comes to God thinks it's about. It, uh, the goodness of Job. Will Job remain faithful when things aren't great for him? Sure, he's good now, but he has everything he wants. Ultimately, though, the question that Job seems, seeks to unpack is, is God good? Consider this from Job's perspective for a second. You've been faithful. You've made all the right sacrifices. You've worshipped the right and true God. You have lived a blessed life. You love your wife well. You care for your children. You are a just and gracious and good man. You are righteous. And yet, Job loses everything. What do his friends tell him to do? Curse God. Why? On what basis would Job curse God? Only because, only if God isn't actually good. You don't curse that which is good. And so the question that is, is, is raised and that Job has to wrestle through in terms of faith and that will show his righteousness is how he responds to the question that is raised, even in the worst times when it seems impossible that a good God could be present. Is God good? For Joseph, being sold into slavery by his brothers, whether or not he will rely on and have faith in the Lord is a matter of whether or not he believes that God is actually good. And we're faced with that question time and time again. It's funny, like when <clears throat> we, we focus a lot, I think, on apologetics in terms of could this have really happened in history, right? Like the creation, the flood, the resurrection. How do we defend these things? Like, could this have happened in history? And a lot of our apologetics is, is focused around, like, authenticating and, and verifying the historicity of that. Uh, in my experience, most of the questions that people who are skeptics or doubters have is less to do with that, like, they, they don't expect a religion to be scientific. But the real issue when you get down to it is like, have you seen the world? What kind of a good God could let this happen? Like the question ultimately is not, how can this be true? Or, or can you verify this or prove this? The question ultimately becomes, is God really good? And we ask this. We ask this every time a child uh, dies, every time 
cancer shows up again. Every time, I mean, even, even on a day like today or a weekend, I suppose, like this weekend, right? Like, think about the sad, disturbing, horrific realities that make Memorial Day for a nation necessary or even a thing. Like, regardless of how you hold the day, what you do, like your little cookouts or whatever, like Memorial Day exists because as a reality on this planet, there is war everywhere. There is not a hemisphere, there is not a continent on this planet that does not know conflict. And there has been for so long. And, and despite Hollywood or despite uh, the, the, uh, the TV, and I guess if that's filmed in Hollywood, wherever that is, like, war is not, like, it's not sleek and smooth. Like, it's not clear cut. It's bloody. It's painful. And it creates orphans and widows and traumatizes, right? And so even this very weekend, we are left with the question, how is it that if God is so good, all of these things can happen? And, and what's interesting is that this isn't the way that Nahum seeks to answer this question. And so part of me is like, maybe I shouldn't even have asked that question. That's a question that we, we can talk about. Like, if God is good, why does evil exist? Uh, we'll explore that, uh, perhaps on a third Thursday uh, coming up. Uh, but, <clears throat> but the question of, is God good, is resoundingly, resoundingly answered in Nahum. And we see it again. God is against Nineveh and Assyria. And for a second, I want us to do what we haven't done too much in this series. I want us for a second to realize that there is continuity between the Old and New Testament. And that the imagery and the pictures and the stories of the Old Testament convey a deeper truth than just the physical realities that they speak to. You see, Assyria is one in a long line of empires that exposes, and in this case, in the scriptures, represents the fact that there is cosmic war happening, that there is good and that there is evil, that there is God and his kingdom, and that there are the powers and principalities of darkness, and that there is battle. Like, friends, if you do not understand the cosmic spiritual battle that exists, then so much of this world will not make true sense. And, and Nahum gives us this picture. For a second, let's not think about Assyria, the ancient Near Eastern Empire. And instead, let's think of Assyria as a type, as a type of the enemy of God, as a, as a, as a, <clears throat> as a physical manifestation of the powers of darkness. 
And as we do that, what Nahum declares, what the Lord declares through Nahum, is that God is against evil. God is against darkness. God is against suffering. God is against oppression. God is against unrighteousness and injustice. All of these things that that Nineveh and that Assyria clearly represent and demonstrate in the highest stage to the fullest scale, God is against that. And therefore, God is against Nineveh. God is against Assyria. And he declares it boldly, I am against you. This is the declaration, now hear this, of the Lord of armies. What's interesting here, uh, and we're going to talk about this at the very end, is that the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, right, is not a name unusual to God. But in this case, what we're going to see is very clear is that the Lord of armies here is not simply God talking about the armies of Israel. Rather, God is saying he's the Lord of all the heavenly hosts, of all the heavenly armies, and also he is God even over the armies that don't call him God. God is sovereign over all of the armies, and the progression of empires belongs to the Lord because Nahum is declaring this to Nineveh, is declaring this to Assyria, and, and in this moment, Nahum is the little guy, and Assyria is the big empire, and uh, because it's been a couple weeks, uh, I'm going to say, like, it reminds me of the first Avengers. It really does. So there's a scene in Germany, and Loki comes out in all his regalia with his scepter and all his power, and he makes the people kneel before him. And he says that you, this is your natural position. You want to cower. You want to kneel. You want to grovel. And as they're there, an old man who's clearly been in Germany for his whole life and has seen what it's like when men stand in front of masses and say, follow me, grovel, or be destroyed. He stands up. And just as Loki finishes saying, you were meant to bow. He says, not before men like you. And then Loki says, there are no men like me. And my favorite line in the movie, the man says, there are always men like you. Despots always think they're the the greatest. They're they're the one that there's never been one like. And this man has seen it before, and he says, there are always men like you. And, And I feel like here's God saying to Nineveh, saying to Assyria, you think that you are the greatest empire. You think that you have done something that no one else can do and has done and is able to do, and the whole world will bow before you. And you're saying there are no empires like Nineveh. And God is here to tell you there are always empires like you. Friends, like empires come and go all the time. And what the Lord says when he says, I'm the Lord of armies, he's saying, I use empires like you to to overthrow and to destroy empires like you all the time. I'm the Lord of armies. I'm going to fully embarrass you. 
right? That's what the next few verses mean. Like, I'm going to fully embarrass you. You can read them. You understand. We don't need to talk through them. That's embarrassing, right? But then listen to what he says. Verse 8. Are you better than Thebes? How often do you guys, minus a couple of you, how often has Thebes come up in conversations for you? What was the last time you were like, hey, remember Thebes? What, a, what an amazing empire. How, how often did you talk about Thebes in school? Exactly. Exactly. When was the last time you were like, oh, man, that Hittite technology, it really did set them apart? Exactly. And here's the thing. They knew about Thebes, but there was no sign. Thebes was completely gone. And listen to what he says. Are you better than Thebes that sat along the Nile with water surrounding her? Listen, like, you think hills are a good tactical advantage? Water. If somebody has to cross water to get to you, that's near impregnable. Thebes, surrounded by water, whose rampart was the very sea? You want to talk about power and defense? You think you're Thebes? <laughs> it's a Psalm 2 moment. The Lord holds them in derision. He laughs at them. You think you're better than Thebes? Cush, right? Ethiopia, <laughs> the ever since unconquered, ever since uncolonized nation. The Arabs couldn't colonize Ethiopia. The Western colonizers never colonized Ethiopia. The uncolonized nation at one point bowed before Thebes. Hush and Egypt. Y'all know Egypt, right? Pyramids and Pharaoh and Moses and the world knew Egypt. Cush and Egypt were her endless source of strength. She took all they had and they were beholden to Thebes. Put, great question, and Libya were among her allies. She had all the military might, all the resources, all the defensive strategy. Thebes was unbreakable, unconquerable, and Thebes is dust. And God says to Assyria and to all the empires of the earth through Assyria, there will always be empires like you. Yet she became an exile she went into captivity. Her children were also dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her dignitaries, and her nobles were bound by chains. You'll also become drunk. You'll hide. You'll seek refuge from the enemy. And yet, all your places of refuge will be like fig trees in the harvest. What happens to fig trees in the harvest? They get plucked dry. All of your fruit, all of your resources, all of your defenses will be gone. You see, there's this arrogance to the enemy. There's this arrogance to evil. There's this arrogance 
to power. There's this arrogance to godlessness that thinks it will be victorious. And God is laughing. Look, he hits them with a sandlot. He hits them with a sandlot, like, put down. Remember the sandlot? It's, it's, look, it's, I get that it's uh, problematic now, but, like, you play ball like a girl, right? Like, that was the most epic, like, battle in, in, in a movie to date. You, y'all are acting like you haven't seen the sandlot, <laughs> right? And he says, your, look, your troops are like women among you. Now, that's funny because uh, let's all remember that one of the most uh, influential and important and powerful war heroes of Israel was a judge named Deborah. So let's not, this is an insult. This is shaming is what he's doing here, but let's not draw any conclusions outside of that, that he is complete. Your land's city gates are wide open for your enemies. You are defenseless. Fire will devour the bars of your gate. Draw water for the seed. Strengthen your fortress. Step into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick. The fire will devour you there. The sword will cut you down. It will devour you like the young locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust, like the swarming locust. You have made merchants more numerous than the sky. The young locust strips the land and flies away. Your court officials are like the swarming duck locusts, and your scribes are like clouds of locusts which settle on the walls on a cold day. When the sun rises, they take off, and no one knows where they are. Okay, so now we get this picture again of Assyria. And this one last explanation that like what Assyria is is just one in a line of many. God defeated them before. God conquers them again. He is the Lord of armies. He is above them. This is important as we ask, is he good? Right? You are like locusts, and at the same time, you are like the fields plucked dry by the locusts. So now consider what locusts do. They come. They, they find a place. When they come in mass, they take everything that is fruitful and good from the place. They leave it barren, and they go away. Assyria is like locusts. They've come through the land. They have taken, they have stripped away, they have left barren everyone and everything. And soon there is locusts coming for Assyria. And even their very own will flee. They will be utterly abandoned. What happened, what they did to others is happening to them. They lived by the sword. They are about to die by the sword. This is the fate of Nineveh and of Assyria. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your officers sleep. Your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them. There is no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe. It's critical. You've been dealt a critical blow right? Like, you are done. This is how, like, like this is how utterly complete, when, so, so now here we go. Is God good? Well, here is Nineveh. Here is Assyria. They have built themselves up by stripping 
oppressing, murdering, stealing, uh, taking all of the dignity from all the peoples of, for them, the known earth. They have assembled themselves up and time after time said, they are greater than all of the people and all of their gods. They are the greatest. And God says, ah, no, you're not even Thebes and nobody talks about Thebes anymore, right? Is God good? In so much as God consistently constantly opposes the forces of evil and darkness and destruction, ultimately of sin, then we see, yes, God is good. And here's what's interesting, because we can ask this question. Um, so who is God good for? <laughs> That's a fair question right now, right? Because if you hear this oracle and you're like, Nineveh, you're like, ah, God's so great. But this is what's really surprising. If you jump back to chapter 2, right? It says in verse 2, the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob, yes, the majesty of Israel, through the ravagers, have ra- though the ravagers have ravaged them, and ruin their branches. The ravagers in this case are Assyria. It's been a lot of other people. It'll continue to be people in the future. In this moment, it's Assyria and Nineveh. God is doing this, we said, three weeks ago or four weeks ago, for the sake of his name and for the sake of his people. God is doing this for Israel. Chapter 2. But listen to this. Chapter 3. All who hear the news about you. Who? It doesn't say all, in ja- all of Jacob, all in Israel. It says all. All who hear the news of you will clap their hands because of you, because of your downfall. All who hear will clap their hands. For who has not experienced your constant cruelty? So how amazing is this? God could have just said, Nineveh, I'm going to break a little hole in your wall and my people are going to run through it and they're going to be fine. That's not what he does, is it? He lays Nineveh to waste and that is a blessing not just to Israel but to all the peoples of the earth. You see, when God in his power destroys and breaks the bonds of the enemy and of oppression and of sin and of death and of violence and of war and destruction, it is good for all. It's interesting, when God makes a promise to Abraham, ultimately that promise is not just for Abraham, is it? It's not just for Abraham or his children. He says, you will be a blessing to who? All nations. Think about this. The movement of Scripture starts generally. God creates everything in Genesis 1. He's the God of everything. He's Elohim. And then in Genesis 2, he gets real specific. He creates a garden, and he creates two specific people, and he's Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim. Elohim is this general name for God. God is God of everything. Yahweh is the covenant name that we see that he gives to Moses. It's the covenant name of God. Yet, like that Yahweh is still Yahweh Elohim. He is the God of his people. He's the God of everyone. When God blesses, there's this thing that that Westminster Confession calls common grace. 
And it means that the blessings of God are applied or can be applied in, in some extent to everyone. Like the way that God is, he, he, his blessing is so abundant that even if he pours it out on his people, say Israel, the blessings are felt by all the people who were ravaged and brutalized by the destruction of Assyria. Right? Like that's, that's phenomenal because in this moment, what we're getting through Nahum is this ultimate declaration that when God destroys, when God destroys evil once and for all, it will not just be because it oppresses Israel. It will be for all the peoples of the earth. God's victory over sin and death will be for all peoples. And here's how it comes about. And this is where we're going to end. You see, Assyria will be defeated by Babylon. And eventually Babylon will be defeated by uh, Greece and Rome. And the march of empires will go on because the way that they're defeated is through violence through war and bloodshed. And I love this phrase. Thebes was defeated as her children were destroyed. And they cast lots for her good men. You see, empires, they transition through violence. But God is promising a total end to this whole process. And the way that this comes about is not through God assembling another human army. That may happen. God is Lord of the armies. Armies may come and go. Empires may come and go. But this ultimate victory cannot come through violence. Not through an army. Not through men with swords or guns or bombs. But there is death, and there is a good man for whom lots are cast. You remember on the cross, what's happening? Like in accordance with the scriptures, with the Psalms, yes, and also here, like this, this weird ironic fulfillment of Nahum, what's happening? They are casting lots for Jesus' very possessions, for his clothes. He is being torn apart. He is taking on the brutality of all of the evil and all of the forces and the powers and principalities of darkness. He is absorbing it. He is taking it on. And death, like Assyria, laughs, thinking it is, it's one. Its power is sure. But the very means of force that it uses against the Son of Man, against the Son of God, is the very means that spells its destruction. 
You see, God will end sin and death and violence and war and empires and the progression thereof by the work of his son, Jesus. And he will do it without lifting a sword or a gun, without waving a flag, just with the voice of his word. Like God will be victorious. And this victory, as we saw in the second book of the Assyria saga, in Micah, we talked about this two weeks ago, this victory will result in all of the nations leaving their gates wide open, taking their swords and beating them into plowshares and their hooks into pr- and their spears into to pruning hooks. They'll live in peace. Peace. God doesn't bring about his empire through violence. He brings about his kingdom through shalom, through the cross, through Jesus. And, and we get to participate in that goodness. We, we get to see, and, and there's so many questions to ask, but we get to see and we believe the goodness of the Lord will be demonstrated once and for all, that all of history is moving towards this final answer. Is the Lord good? Is God good? Yes, because we will hear, as John did, a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling place is with humanity. He will live with them. Humanity. He he will live with humanity, and they will be his people's. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, Look, brothers and sisters, look. Jesus Christ the Lord is making all things new. He's making all things new. I know I said that was the end, but I have to say this. Because there's so much, there's so much going on right now that makes you if you are if you are sane and you are paying attention, there's so much right now that makes you want to bang your head against the wall. There's so much right now that makes you want to take your towel, whatever it is, and just throw it in. We planted out of Redeemer Arlington. I'm gonna take this off the recording, but I'm just gonna let you guys know so you can be praying. We planted out of Redeemer Arlington. Um, good friends of ours are the worship leaders there, Jordan and Tally Coughlin. Um, eight or nine years ago, their son, Jack, was diagnosed with leukemia. He battled it for a year. Uh, it was in full remission. He's 11 now, and they've just found out that it's come back. The leukemia's come back. It's in his spinal fluid as well. They're going to have to do aggressive chemotherapy. They're going to have to do radiation, cranial radiation. And this is not new. They are not alone. Like, come on. And the promise of God is this, that by the victory of Jesus on the cross, Jack getting leukemia again 
is the counter of children who will have cancer ticking down closer to zero. Right? There will be a last of everything. There will be a last war. One day, troops will put down their weapons, and they may not know it then, but it will be the last time that there is war. One day, a mother will cry tears for their child that has passed away, and they won't know it in the moment, but it will be the last tear that a parent sheds. One day, a last child will die from starvation. Right? One day. A last trans person will kill themselves. One day, there will be a last of all of the grief, all of the sorrow. There will be no tears. Because the answer in Nahum, and the answer in Scripture is this, yes, God is good.